Welcome to the podcast. Um, my name is Kate Bearmuller. I'm the co-founder of Kami Culinary Workspace. Uh, this is uh, episode two of the Kami Culinary Podcast. So uh, just to give a little bit of context, uh, we're on day seven of the coronavirus shutdown here in Southern Ontario. Uh, we're really excited to have Tanya Ganassini on. Uh, Tanya is a local chef here in Niagara-on-the-Lake. Um, something to think about, maybe if you're not as familiar with the Niagara region, um, I'm located in St. Catharines, Tanya's in Niagara-on-the-Lake, and sometimes that doesn't feel super close. Um, so that's one of the things I'm really excited about uh, doing this podcast, especially over the next couple of weeks when we are all have a lot more free time than we would normally be used to or than any of us really want. Um, just trying to break down some of those like micro-regional barriers and um, kind of give a voice to all of the cooks and chefs and and food entrepreneurs in the region and uh, hopefully just foster a little bit of a tighter knit community than we might um, revert to on our just day-to-day basis when we're all trying to compete. I think um, for me, the theme of this whole shutdown is community over competition. And uh, there's tons of people in the region who have really inspired me um, ever since the shutdown a week ago. And it's really really encouraging to see all the ways that the different food entrepreneurs and chefs and restaurants and just even individuals, people supporting the industry. It's been really, really cool to see how everyone's shown up for one another. So um, I'll stop rambling and we'll get to the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to Tanya. Okay, cool. Uh, let's just get right into it. Uh, okay. This is the Kami Culinary Workspace podcast. Working title, not not the best, I realize, at this point. <laughs> um, we can do better, I think. Uh, but it's just, I've just been really wanting to get right into these interviews since I'm hoping we're not all off for a long time. So I'm trying to take advantage of what I hope will be a, a small window. Yeah, but we're all going to be available and have time on our hands. So welcome to the podcast. Thank and, you. Uh, I'll just give it over to you. Take three to five minutes. Tell everybody about yourself, where you're from, uh, how you got into this life of yours. And yeah. Okay, cool. Well, first of all, I actually like the working title. Sidebar. I like it. Um, but yeah, I also like the idea of, uh, on a totally separate tangent of just starting, Yeah, you know, just starting something. So instead of waiting for like the, the perfect name and the perfect, whatever, I feel like that's what holds a lot of people back. So kudos for doing that. Um, yeah. So, uh, well, I've been cooking for, oh my God, it's almost 14 years, I guess, professionally. It's weird to think about it. It's so weird. It's yeah, like almost half of your life basically. Uh, and I really should never have ever been allowed in a kitchen when I when I did start. But for some reason, I guess I had enough. You know, when you're at a certain age, you're like 19 and you don't realize how shit you are because you just think, oh, can you can we swear on this? Uh, I, I probably will also. Okay. So thank you for um, opening that up as a possibility. Okay. I'll I, try to keep it to a minimum. When you say that you had no business being in a kitchen, like quantify that. What did, what was that actually like day to day? 
Like, okay, so well, I was 19 when I first applied to my first uh, for, to my first professional cooking job, and I'd been like I'd worked as a hostess or whatever before. I like I'd been semi familiar with the restaurant industry, but yeah. I had never cooked in a professional setting at all. I had I was obsessed with the Food Network, you know, like yeah. a little little punk ass kid that I was. I just I really was obsessed with it. I cooked for all my friends. Like I, I thought that was enough because. <laughs> You yeah, know, when, you, when you don't know anything, you don't know how little you know. Yeah, totally. But in a way, that naivete was kind of in – it worked in my favor because I sold myself to the, the, the sous chef who interviewed me because I legitimately thought I was good. And I, I had not – amazing. I did. And I had no idea how terrible I actually was. And that, you know, industry experience goes obviously such a long way. Um, and I had no, I didn't go to culinary school or anything either. So I had no training whatsoever. So what was that first job? How did you end up in front of that sous chef? Uh, so I worked at this restaurant in Oakville called Paradiso and it was very much at at that point in my life, the quintessence of fine dining. And, um, I, I just knew it in Oakville as like, it was the place that you went to. It was just the coolest fanciest restaurant I'd ever seen in my life and uh, I just got you back. look back on that now and say actually it was not so much or... not not exactly you know maybe like world world class but it, it was a good start a really good start and it was definitely yeah. too good for me when I first started that's for sure so I feel I owe them a lot and um okay. yeah but definitely not like not the style of fine dining that I ended up cooking later on in life but I came back from traveling with my family. We um, we all traveled together. I have three siblings, so there's four of us and my parents. They basically pulled us all out of whatever we were doing. I was in university. My siblings were all either in high school or elementary school. We backpacked Europe together for three months. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So it was, yeah, that was nuts. It was amazing. The best, obviously the best thing could have ever asked for the best gift ever. We weren't it I don't know why I feel like I always need to say this, but we weren't rich. Like this wasn't we weren't being spoiled. I mean, we were very spoiled in that we had that opportunity, but um we all contributed and you know, we stayed in hostels and things like that. I mean, just that opportunity I realized is a huge luxury and a privilege. Uh but I didn't live like a crazy charmed or privileged right. I think and, and coming yeah. coming from that like you were fortunate but not, like yes you appreciated what your parents were doing for you and you you like sank your teeth into it basically absolutely right. exactly um at the same time to to caveat that as well I realized that living in Canada alone in the circumstances I lived in is that is a privileged existence so I I really want to make that clear I I realize that inherently there's a lot of privilege there so uh yeah um basically came back from Europe and I had no idea. I just knew I couldn't go back to university. There was just no way. I just could not step foot in that university. I just, I didn't know what else to do. And the person I was dating at the time, he was like, you, all you do is talk about food. That's all you do. All you do is cook. All you do is think about, talk about, you watch the Food Network obsessively, just apply to a kitchen. Um, and I'm, I'm really thankful to him for kind of seeing that in me. And, and then of course, because I had that sort of blind confidence at the time, I just applied on a complete whim and yeah, somehow I sold myself to that sous chef and he grace graciously gave me the opportunity. And I started, you know, just doing like prep and, um, kind of odd jobs around the kitchen. 
made more mistakes than anyone could ever imagine. Um, Injured myself a lot, you know, cut my, cut my, the top of my nail bed, cutting romaine lettuce because I was trying to be fast and cool. (laughs) (laughs) Like just to put things in perspective and make Mm -hmm. you feel any better for what it's worth. My first day in a real kitchen, I was told to go and grab some cucumbers from the yeah, and I came back with some zucchini. So, (laughs) thank you, thank you. Yeah, (laughs) we all have our. uh, Or like, did you ever get pranked with like the bag of air, or you know, like the you go get a bucket of steam kind of (laughs) exactly. I didn't, but I'm familiar with that trick. Yeah, yeah, same, same. Yeah, oh yeah, no, I never fell for that, not once. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's that was my time there, and then I worked there for two years, and I went to culinary school, and then I, I guess I sort of opened my eyes a little bit, being in the city too, commuting, but kind of being surrounded by the restaurant industry in the city was just so completely different than what I'd experienced in the suburbs and no shade whatsoever to the suburbs or the restaurant I cut my teeth in, but you know, different, different. Exactly. Just to back it up, just, I want to make sure I'm clear. You are from Oakville. I am. Yeah. I was born in Toronto, but uh, grew up in Oakville for most of my life. And then we're going to university in Toronto as well. Actually, I went to McMaster. Okay, so you're at Jordan Brown. Was that an amazing experience? It was actually. It was really great. It's it's where I made a lot of my close friendships and connections, where I met some mentors. Uh, It's where I kind of learned about the industry. I mean, I know I'd been working in the industry, but I guess I learned more about the industry. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then just kind of fine-tuning the skills that I'd learned on the job. So it was really great. And then because of that, I actually got some really cool internship opportunities. Um, I worked on Anna Olson's show Fresh. Oh, yeah. As a like an assistant food stylist. And cool. it was really cool. And actually, it was we had to some some days we were shooting on location in Port Luzi, which I remember at the time thinking Port Luzi was like on the other side of the planet. But we shot at her at her actual house. Right. Yeah, that's where the show was was being shot, and I just thought that was the absolute coolest thing on on planet Earth. And she was lovely. And uh, but yeah, I remember thinking that Port Luzi felt like it was so far. I'd never heard of it before, and I basically am there every other day now. But never ever could have seen my life going in this direction at that time. But yeah, so that was really cool. A product of um, a mentor of mine at George Brown, and then I worked for Jamie Kennedy. And that, like, that really properly changed my perspective on what cooking could be and should be and just really being in touch with where food comes from. And it was kind of, yeah, it really planted the seed for basically all of my values now really started there. And yeah, and I mean, Jamie Kennedy, he was mopping the floor, like he was in the trenches. He was so cool and so inspiring. And I mean, like his, his pride in terms of showing us things that would come in fresh from a farm or wherever they were coming from, like he was so ingredient focused almost Mm -hmm. to a fault. And it was, it was really, it was so, so incredible. And I feel so lucky that I, that I was able to spend time there. And that was at a time when like, that wasn't like the cool thing to do. It was just like really authentic. 
right? Exactly. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. That, that notion was really kind of in its infancy in Toronto, I think. And I know there were definitely a lot of places on the ground floor starting that, um, that movement, but he was definitely one of the original, one of the original chefs to kind of um, just make that a part of his ethos. Cause it was him. It was just, it was just entirely him. It just, mm-hmm. he didn't force it. It wasn't, yeah, he, exactly what you said. He wasn't trying to be cool or try, you know, he, it just was, it just was Jamie. I remember seeing him speak at uh, the Canadian chefs Congress at Eigenson farm. And uh, I had, you know, heard of him and stuff, but he super inspiring character. Um, really, really interesting guy. Must have been a very cool experience for you at that. You were still pretty young, 20-ish? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I must have been, I guess, like 21, 2021. Yeah, I was very young. And um, yeah, and Eigenson Farm, that was, oh my God. Yeah, we did some some events there. And that's also an amazing place, really amazing. That's awesome. So then that's like between years of college or where are we at now? Yeah, that's actually still in college. So Okay. Yeah, I was working and going to school and it was also kind of my first foray into truly long hours. Like I definitely worked long hours at my first job, but this was totally different. This was, you know, getting on the train at 5 a.m. and then finishing an event sometimes if I was if I was working in events for Jamie, sometimes finishing at like 1 or 2 a.m. and then driving back to Oakville. Mm-hmm. So that was, yeah, that was truly my first um, introduction to long hours. And I thought it was so badass. I thought it was like the coolest thing ever. It's a badge of honor at that oh, stage, right? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, I guess, you know, in your early twenties, you have the energy for it. So. And it's um, like, yeah. it's your sort of like, it's the way of saying like, you're good enough to an extent right like they're not going to have you there all day every day if you're in the way or if you're not performing so it's kind of it's kind of good for the self-esteem for a young cook in a kind of twisted way yeah you know what I mean yeah you're so right you're so right it's so true the stuff that uh the stuff that you kind of convince yourself of in in at that age and at that stage of your career and and it's definitely I'm sure we're all thankful for for doing that I certainly am so I'm so thankful that I did that but but yeah, it's so true. It kind of, it does give you a sense of value and bolsters your self-worth. And just the, like, if you think about the math of it, mm-hmm. I've learned the most at jobs where I've spent 20 hours a day there because you're just there more. You're just working more. You're just, you know, if you think about how many hours you would work doing eight hours a day, five days a week versus the amount of time spent in the kitchen and the amount of mistakes and the amount of learning from those mistakes, working 20 hours a day, six days a week obviously you're going to get a lot better, a lot faster. So yes, such a good point. Yeah. It really kind of shortens the growth curve. Not that I'm uh, sort of an advocate for working like that, but I totally the hardest jobs have definitely given me the most value and advanced my skills the most. So I I get it. Um, So, okay. You're in first year of college still at this point. And then what, uh, where do you go from there? I know you spent some time in Europe again. How did that come about? Yeah. So, okay. God, I, even I'm trying to remember my timeline here, but yeah, I guess that was in my, maybe my last year, last couple years of college. Um, well, it was only two years. Oh, okay. Sorry. Let me back up here. Okay. Cause I did a post, a post-secondary, um, 
diploma in Italian cuisine. That's basically what brought me back to Europe. Okay, cool. So I went, yeah, I decided to continue my education and I enrolled in this program. This was basically the program that convinced me to go to George Brown above other colleges. So it's a year-long program and you live and work in a Michelin star restaurant in Italy. So you're there for about three and a half months and and you're staging in a Michelin star restaurant. And then there's you're actually in culinary school for a couple weeks on campus before that. So you're kind of getting some hands-on skills first and then you're learning the language too leading up to that. So you're in class in at George Brown first, learning the language, learning some recipes, kind of getting a, a sense of the culture, and then they ship you off. But you have no idea what stage you, what your stage is until right. you step foot in Italy. And even then, they make you wait two weeks because I think they're sort of assessing all of the cooks to see yeah. where they wanted to ship them off. And then basically the day before your stage, you're told where you're going. And this was pre, like none of us had smartphones. So we, you couldn't Google anything. You really didn't know. Right. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of amazing, actually, just a truly blind experience. And uh, yeah, then we got shipped off. We were all kind of tossed around the country. So I was actually the only person that had someone in the same town. I, I got so lucky. I honestly don't know how I got so lucky, but I had, yeah, I had a classmate in the same town and it was a pretty small town and everybody else though, like I had some friends that were in the, in the middle of a field that had to walk, you know, like 10 kilometers to the nearest train station with no, no street lights, nothing, absolutely completely isolated. So I, I feel pretty lucky and it was definitely... I mean, otherwise, to get into a Michelin star restaurant somewhere, you'd have to kind of know somebody or, I mean, I guess you could, you could just apply, but it just. But at that, at that stage of your career, it's. Yeah, right? exactly, exactly. And you sort of felt protected by the institution if you needed anything. So yeah, that, it was really definitely a very, very valuable experience and something cool that George Brown offers. So amazing uh, launch had to the rest of your career. What did that look like when you came home to Toronto? What what opportunities awaited you? So yeah, when I came back, I was a little bit lost. I think travel kind of does that. I've always felt like that. Anytime I've come back from travel, even if it's only been brief, I usually, I feel like it's a reset button and it kind of makes you evaluate where you're at and kind of think about what you want to do next in a different way than, in it with a different perspective than before you left. So yeah, I didn't really know. I actually felt like I wanted to get a bigger ass kicking in Italy than I got. Like I remember writing those exact words in my the journal that I kept. I felt like I got off easy or something. So I think the ass kicking I was expecting was uh, like maybe borderline abuse, which I obviously wouldn't ask for now. And uh, but I think I. But it's kind of the expectation, yeah. right? When you go to the old world, yeah, in whatever form that is. I expected it when I went to England yeah. and and I witnessed it. I didn't really get it yeah. that bad, but I definitely witnessed it and and yeah, it's just I think it's something that if you have already spent some time in kitchens and you're on your way to Europe, um it's definitely something that you're aware of, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, oh, England, I can imagine. Yeah, I've heard a lot of a lot of horror stories from friends who've worked in England. It was amazing. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, just different. Totally. Yeah. So anyway, that's, that's what I was expecting, but I don't know why, I don't know why I wanted that, but I did anyway. So I came back and I, uh, 
very, very quickly ended up applying to Canoe. And that's where I worked for the next couple of years. And again, like every, basically every stage, every time I moved to a new kitchen, I remember thinking that I was better than I was at the time, probably better and worse than I was at the time, just being completely unaware of where I was actually skill-wise, where I actually was. And uh, I think coming back from Italy in a Michelin star restaurant, you, I don't know, you get an idea of, you just think you're you're the shit. But then at the same time, having zero self-confidence, which I don't, I don't understand how that works, but I had both no confidence and all the confidence at the same time. So yeah, I, I started basically at the bottom, um, at Canoe and in, in, on Garde Manger and, uh, worked my way up. And that was a lot too. Like we worked a lot. And again, I thought it was the coolest. I thought, yeah, I was working way, way more than all of my friends that I grew up with. And I felt like they didn't understand me. And I felt like a lot of my friendships from back home kind of fell away because we just couldn't, you just eventually kind of speak a different language almost, you know? And yeah. And then you're you're missing all of these huge momentous things. And I think it actually, it hurts less if you can put up a barrier and you feel like, oh, we're just different now, or I don't know, or they don't get me or, or something like that. It almost made me feel like it, it kind of quelled the pain a little bit because it, it is hard to miss out on everything. And, and when you care so much about missing out on things at that age, it feels, it just feels like everything that you knew and all of the people that were important to you maybe just aren't there anymore. And that's, that's really scary. So I, I remember feeling a very, a big sense of a separation of my old self from my my new self, whatever that was. This is weird. Everything you say, I'm like kind of thinking it right before you say it. It's really? Weird. Like we don't act, we don't know each other very well, but I feel like we have a lot of very similar, um, like just personal history, just happening completely separate from one another. Obviously, yeah. But we have you know we've had a lot of the same things happen to each other. Wow. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Eh? Like I always think about that. Like that happened to someone else. Like if I think about yeah, uh, like a life outside of the industry, it's mm-hmm. kind of like your your ulterior personality like it's they're different people I so agree honestly I I know this is really weird but I swear to you I think my voice changed like I swear I changed the cadence of my voice and like the pitch of my voice to to not be at like I I kind of dulled my personality from you know from years of working in the kitchen because I didn't want to be loud or annoying or girly or like too feminine or too whatever. I I don't know what I was trying to be or not be, but I I remember maybe not consciously just trying to not be me because I just didn't think that showing up as me would be accepted in a kitchen. So I I really, like I changed myself and really kind of felt the old parts fall away a little bit and then kind of felt lost a little bit because I didn't, I just didn't know who the real Tanya was because there was this this new part that was informed by the industry and then this old part that was informed by childhood, my parents, my friends, you know, all of that, all of those other influences. So, yes. so did this become like a deal breaker for you? Were you considering changing industries? Were you consider, considering making some like career changes or did you just feel like you needed a change of scenery? 
I didn't really know, actually. I remember having a chat with my chef at one point at Canoe and and telling him, and I don't even know where this came from. It just kind of came out in our meeting, just telling him I felt like I needed I needed to move on and I didn't know why, but I just felt like my best self wasn't wasn't coming forward. And I honestly, it just, it felt like it was um, coming from a from my subconscious. Like I didn't even know that I felt like that until the words left my mouth. And I was like, shit, that is what I feel. I just feel like I'm not my best self here. And I don't know why it was transformative in terms of my skill level and the connections I made. And I am so grateful for all the mentorship I got there and everything I learned. I mean, it was, yeah, it was really incredible, but I just knew that at some point I wasn't my best self and I needed to figure out what that, what that was. And it's still, that that was 10 years ago maybe yeah about 10 years ago and i'm still trying to figure out what that what that is and who my best self is but i i definitely feel like i'm getting closer and closer so what happened next when you left canoe mm-hmm. did you you said it was kind of a little bit outside yourself did did you have a plan for where you were going to go next did you like what happened next uh, i i actually sold fish for this what? <laughs> It's for like a, like a like a seafood company that would supply to like a restaurant. Yes and no. Uh, have you heard of Colapore Springs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so at the time, I actually don't know how big the, the company is now, but at the time they were very small, and they were just sort of selling directly to restaurants. They didn't have any um, uh, wholesalers or yeah or any other. They weren't going through any suppliers. It was just direct. And yeah, and he was just looking for someone to help get into the into restaurants, essentially, and just someone who maybe knew people in the industry who could get, yeah. So I Connection. exactly, and I guess how many fish I sold? How many? Zero. <laughs> that was the- so, so you were like, I think I'm going to continue being a chef. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I was so <laughs> bad, I, I, honestly. Also realize sales uh, is not for me because if you can't sell, well, that's a weird sentence. I was about to say, if you can't sell a fish, then you can't sell anything. But I don't know if I stand behind that. <laughs> I mean, if you can't sell like high quality fish yeah. to restaurants that you already have a bit of an existing relationship with, then yeah, maybe. Exactly. Thank you. That's, yeah, that's, that maybe makes more sense. <laughs> it's not as catchy as exactly. yours. But... Yeah. Tried to make it concise, but it, it didn't make sense. <laughs> so Yeah realized I was a terrible fish salesperson and I <laughs> I then um kismetly ran into someone uh this guy I don't need to name him but he is a very very mm, well connected person in the industry and we were at when Momofuku was opening up in Toronto we were there and we bumped into him and he was like oh cafe balloon is like we just opened like two weeks ago and we're re- like, we're really short staffed. We really need someone. We need like someone to make pasta. And I was like, Oh, my little Italian heart was like, Oh yeah, baby, this is it. This is it. This is the dream. I don't have to, <laughs> I'm just going to make pasta all day. Oh, like, is there anything better? Okay, perfect. I applied and the, <laughs> the wording, I don't know why. Oh, I, okay. On my, on the, it was my cover letter or something that I sent to the chef. I said that I worked every station except the meat station or something like that at Canoe, basically. And um, they were actually looking for a saucier. And I, I don't know, basically the wording, like the way the chef read it, he he thought I had worked 
the saucier position at canoe. So he basically hired me out of, I'm sure it was out of desperation, basically hired me for the, the saucier position. Can I just interject sure. really quickly? Of course. Are you a vegan at this point? No. Oh God. No, no, no. Oh, the farthest thing. Oh yeah. That, that's also interesting. I had never, I wanted to own a butcher shop. Like at that stage in my life, I thought, yeah, like I never, I, I even said, I remember saying this several times that if I had met someone like, or if my husband, my now husband, if he told me that he was a vegetarian or a vegan, that it would be a deal breaker. I genuinely felt like that at the time. <laughs> it was, okay. yeah, yeah. For, the opposite, the opposite story of what people would expect yeah. from the two of you. But yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. no, fervently <laughs> opposed to veganism or vegetarianism I would oh I would just curse anyone who came in with veg or or uh, vegan mods like I just I couldn't even I could I had no tolerance so uh yeah very different story but I I really I was excited to learn the meat station but I also this this kind of confidence mixed with zero confidence came into play again where I felt like okay, I deserve to be in this kitchen, but I never felt good enough to work the meat station. I had so much fear around cooking proteins. I don't, I don't really know why. I just, I was terrified and I just thought it was this senior position in the kitchen and, and the expectations would be so high and I would surely fail. And so anyway, they basically threw me right in and I had never, like truly never, not even worked a day on a meat station. And I, I think my fear was actually what what held me back a lot. I was so scared of making mistakes that surely I made a lot of them. And I, I learned really quickly, as as we all know, that kind of getting thrown into the fire is the best way. But um, but yeah, I really like I, I felt like I was garbage. I had my self-worth was so low and I, you know, it was more of a mm, the French kitchen mindset really really came out in in this scenario a little bit more even than canoe I would say so I was definitely the basically the Daniel Balud quote that I think about all the time that kind of sums up my time there is something to the effect of the closest thing you'll get to a compliment is the absence of criticism hmm. that that basically sums up my two years there I would say and I again learned so much completely changed my life met people so yeah you got the ass whooping that you were hoping sure for. did I sure did yeah. <laughs> better luck than never but I got it yeah <laughs> and probably I know for sure and, I, and for some of them like my chef at the time he had worked for Gordon Ramsay they basically had all worked in the UK at some point um one of my sous chefs was from New Zealand the uh, my other sous chef had worked for Joel Robichon so they the ass real like, yeah real real, chef. real. Yeah. like they were so so good and I remember I'm sure that the ass kicking I got was nothing compared to the ass kicking they got. And I'm sure they, they felt like they were going easy on me and on us, but, uh, I am a sensitive soul and you know, that, that is hard in a kitchen because I tried to be tough and I tried to pretend that I was, that I was tough, but it, it hurt me. And I wasn't super resilient in terms of taking, um, a certain type of criticism. I love, like, I obviously want to be told how to improve because I always want to be better and I am not okay with complacency, but, but there's a certain type of delivery that I found very triggering and, uh, that may or may not come up in therapy now as an adult, but (laughs) (laughs) did you like, can you, if you had to guess Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm not 
uh, I'm asking this because I'm trying to think of my own answer to this question, which would be hilarious. How many days between the age of 19 and 29 Mm -hmm. do you think you cried at the end of a work day? Oh, wow. Oh, this is good. I like this one. Actually, uh, I would often cry before my work day. And that, (laughs) that would be... I would say uh, out of, okay, out of 365 days of the year, I would say probably maybe 300 of them <laughs> either cried before, That's a, before or sounds after. Sounds like a good strategy, though. Crying on the way into work is like, okay, I'm, out, I, I'm good now. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You get, you release those endorphins, you know, the whatever few endorphins you have left, you release them <laughs> in your tears. And, oh, yeah, there was a... Uh, when I was at Cafe Balloon, I remember in the early days anyway, before I learned, just learned in general, <laughs> before I just learned, um, I, yeah, I would, I would be on the streetcar and my days off were Monday, Tuesday. And every Wednesday I would call my parents in hysterics. I just couldn't, I couldn't keep together no matter how hard I tried. I just, I was losing it. I ended up, I lost like 25 pounds because I was so anxious and couldn't eat and then started working out basically obsessively because I didn't know what else to do. And, uh, yeah, it was not just to have some control over something. That's exactly what it was. It was totally, yeah, it was the only semblance of control I felt in my life. And it wasn't even like the hours weren't even that long because it was in a hotel. So we had, you know, yeah, we were sort of protected by the hotel in some ways. They didn't want us to go to work overtime. So it wasn't even the hours. It was, I I don't know, it was personal. I think it was personal. And yeah, so I I was pretty miserable for a lot of my time there. And I'm actually kind of sad for my past self because I think if I leaned into it more, I I actually would have gotten more out of it and been less miserable. But that was, that was the journey I had to I had to go through that, I guess, uh, because that's actually why I ended up here in Niagara. So how did that transition come about? So um, my dad's a home inspector and he was inspecting in the garrison village. He doesn't usually come to Niagara at all. It was just a coincidence. And he was like, yeah, you guys, you're going to love this area. You have to come out here. And we were like, "Ah, Niagara, what if... No way. Where would we work? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, we were like, how can you? No, no, no. You can't be in the industry and be in Niagara. No, 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 you can't. And so we were sure that we didn't know anyone out here either. So we were like, yeah, right. You don't you don't go to the, you know, you don't stay in this industry and work in Niagara. We just we just didn't know anything about the region at all. And so we initially kind of shut By it down. By the way, like yeah. I was born and raised here and traveled in my 20s. Yeah. 100% thought the exact same thing every time I would talk to my parents I'd be in England or Australia or wherever mm-hmm. and they'd be like do you think you'll ever come home and I'd be like yeah but like where would I work okay like and I'm from that. here and I knew yes okay thank you for saying that and I and I don't say that be- I, I say that because I don't feel like that now uh at 100%. all right yeah exactly I want to clarify that I don't feel like that now but at the time and when you're in a big city you think it's the shit and you think that the big city is the only place to have opportunity and it's where all the cool restaurants are and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, we didn't, we didn't know. Um, And this is also like, like for most part of our early mm -hmm. careers, like pre Instagram, pre like, you know, every single chef, you know, having a cookbook and like, you know, so there was a lot less awareness that it was a lot less feasible for a local chef to build any sort of following or brand because 
it just wasn't a thing. Yeah. Right? That's such a good point. That's such a good point. We were, yeah, we were less connected digitally that at that time. So you just, you didn't really have a way aside from maybe word of mouth and Googling someone's business. You really didn't have any concept of what was happening outside of your own kind of echo chamber and uh, your own kind of community. So yeah, that's a really good point. And I'll, I'll definitely blame it on that for sure. So <laughs> yeah, so basically it's kind of a longer story than this, but essentially we went to see this house. My dad took us to see this, this house in um, basically down the street from where we live now. We fell in love with it. And basically a week later I was, I was about to go into work and I just had this, this gut feel like I just, I called John and I, I just, I was like, we're, we need to move to Niagara. I was like, do you want to do it? Do you want to just go? Like, just fuck it. Fuck all of this. Let's just go. And he was like, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. We both had great jobs. We were saving up. Like we, uh, you know, we were doing really well and it just, I just knew I, I, we just had to do it. And then as simple as that, we basically, uh, we had three months to save up and fortunately we could because we had a roommate and, we stopped spending $60 a night on uh, premium cocktails. So we, hmm. um, yeah, we basically buckled down. We saved our asses off and then we were able to, to move down here. And yeah, that was crazy. And, and the appeal was, it's nice. Look at all the produce. <laughs> like yeah. it's chill. Yep. Like there wasn't a job saying, Hey, come do this. It was, it was literally just a lifestyle choice yes exactly yeah literally no connections uh no job opportunities no friends were you into were you into wine or like Mm. what was the not not as much yeah kind of a little bit I mean I don't actually really drink now so I would say I was much more into wine at the time but I just I can't explain it it just felt like the I think the outer chaos that I'd felt for so many years I was just so desperate to escape that and I didn't know how else to except to physically escape it and to surround myself with with calm externally. And I just felt like if I did that, I would figure things out. And yeah, that was that was honestly the the main impetus because we didn't have anything else lined up at all. So this is something that I've never really um, known too much about just because I think I was probably maybe in England at the time, or I wasn't around when this was a thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, so tell me about the Norton Underground. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's actually, we started it because we had nothing. We started it because we had no job opportunities. And we were so stupid because we moved here in the middle of the winter, like December, January. And we didn't realize how seasonal it was because in any other city, essentially, you don't have the your job is not seasonal. Your job, there's always a shortage of, of cooks. And in Toronto, it's like what little bit of seasonality is, is like the opposite to Niagara, right? Like yes. summer is less hectic. There. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, we had no clue. We just thought like, oh yeah, we're hot shit. We'll get jobs. Okay. We didn't, we didn't actually think that, but uh, you know, we, it's okay. we just thought we would have no problem getting jobs and that our resumes were pretty decent and that we shouldn't have a hard time. And we were completely wrong, had no, no concept of just truly how seasonal it was. And um, I remember we went for a walk on Queen Street in downtown Niagara-on-the-Lake. And we were like, I remember we were counting the amount of people we saw on the street and we were like, I don't, I don't get it. Like, are they, is it like a holiday down here that we don't know about? Like, are people like, what, is it like a, 
I don't know. Is there like a curfew or something? <laughs> <I just couldn laughs> was your it. perception as a relative newcomer mm-hmm. outsider to Niagara, was your perception that Niagara on the Lake was the center of the Niagara universe? Kind of, kind of. Mm-hmm. I didn't, yeah, I'm, I really had no clue how much magic there was around. Like I knew about, um, yeah, yeah. Not to throw shade on Niagara on totally, the Lake in totally. any way, shape or form, but it's, it's interesting how, for people who are from Toronto yeah. or Oakville or whatever, mm-hmm. that's Niagara on the Lake gets a large proportion of the buzz. Absolutely. Historically, at least for sure. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, five years ago when we moved here, the, I think St. Catharines has changed so much. Um, Beamsville, Jordan, I think all of the surrounding areas have changed so much. And I just definitely... I was wrong at the time to think that, but I think even more so now the surrounding areas are so full of talent and exciting new businesses and opportunities and ventures. And uh, yeah, it, it's, I'm very excited to see what, what else is going to happen in the future, but, but yeah, you're, you're exactly right. We kind of thought Niagara on the Lake was it. We also lived in Niagara on the Lake. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no, I, you're totally right. And, and the Norton Instagram started because yeah, we, we basically we fell in love with speakeasies, and when we were traveling a bit in Chicago, we um, we went to a speakeasy underneath the Aviary, which is um, yeah, which is Grant Ackett's cocktail bar. I'm nodding. I'm like, I see you nodding. I see. You. <laughs> I know you see me nodding, but this is a podcast, right? I it's gonna take just an apology to anyone who's bothered to invest in this podcast early on. Uh, I haven't figured it out yet, and I'm just nodding in the back. So, well, carry on. It's validating me a lot, so thank you. <laughs> Good. Yeah, your map. Uh, Do you like Tanya that? Doesn't have her video turned on, so I'm just staring at a map of the universe. I don't know why that's the alternate. Uh, it's meta. Yeah. yeah, I'm just trying to be meta right now. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Anyways, yeah, that's all. Basically, we started because we had nothing, and we fell in love with speakeasies, and we wanted to basically uh, deliver that experience to people here, and we just started to pop up in random places and we thought, Oh, it'd be so sick if we had like transportation and like nobody knew where they were going. And we had, we found, I don't even know how we found this person, but we found someone, I would go to her house and drop off these, uh, like these pieces of paper and she would do calligraphy for us. And yeah, she would do these old kind of old English calligraphy style, handwritten invitations and we did the wax stamp thing and we had we basically had our siblings working for us and eventually when we made more connections we had other people working for us as well but working with us I should say and um but yeah in the in the early days it was just us and I don't even know how it started very very small I mean nobody knew us we had no idea I mean social media too it definitely played a played a role but it wasn't it was not the way it is now so yeah, it was yeah because what year was this this was oh god I don't know 2015 yeah so like not Instagram is a thing but not like mature yet yeah kind of. exactly not, or not not in a sleepy town like Niagara on the Lake yes sure. exactly exactly and we really didn't understand marketing and we really didn't understand the power of word of mouth in a region like this so without any mouths to spread the word to, because we didn't know anybody, we just... You literally knew no one. You didn't have like a, like a single friend um, in Niagara. It was just the two of you at that yeah. point. At that point, yeah. yeah. But, our, but we kind of somehow met 
Paul Harbor. I can't remember how, but he basically made us feel, he introduced us to people and made us feel so welcome and at home very, very early on. And without that, I, I don't know what we would have done, but he was a big supporter early on and told people about us. And eventually that's how John got to Ravine and yeah. And then that was really instrumental for us because if we didn't have that connection so early on, I, I, I think it would have been a, a much steeper climb because yeah, it, it's hard when you don't know anyone in a small town. So how long was the Norton underground? So just like, just to circle back mm-hmm. a little bit. So it was a pop-up restaurant for one night every so often that people would get dropped off to. They didn't know where they were going. They just said, Hey, I'm going to buy a ticket. And that like, how did that work? <laughs> yeah. So basically, uh, yeah, you would buy a ticket. You would get a letter in the mail. The letter would tell you where the meetup spot was. And it was usually at a hotel in, in downtown Niagara on the lake. And then we would have transportation arranged. We would rent either uh, like a limo or an SUV or something. And um, they would have a driver and they would have someone meet them there from our team. They would have a drink and then they would get shipped off to the location, which they would not be aware of. And then, yeah, we would be there. It was always family style. And we would just, yeah, we would start basically pouring and feeding people as much as we possibly could until they enjoyed it. And that was that was basically it. And then they would get a take-home gift of some sort, usually like uh, something baked by us, like a baked good or something. And uh, yeah, and then they would be taken back in the car that we provided to the pickup location. And then they would have to find their way back after that. So it actually sounds like, like I'm just thinking about this from an entrepreneurial like standpoint, mm-hmm. it's a pretty practical business, right? Because you would sell tickets, so you would mm-hmm. have this sort of guaranteed income yeah. for the event and you'd be able to cost it out accordingly. And like, was it, was it profitable? Did it make sense? Were you guys like, hey, this could be a thing. Let's keep doing this. Or what, mm. where did it go from there? <laughs> no, it didn't. It maybe could have though, because we, we honestly... Like we both started working full time. Uh, when things started to pick up steam with the Norton Underground, we were both starting to pick up steam in our own jobs, and we we actually did get them eventually here. And so that uh, that proved to be challenging because we we couldn't put our resources in in terms of time the same way we were able to initially. So I don't know. I think it actually could have been profitable, but we were spending a lot on the location, renting the location, and then renting the equipment. Like we had to rent a convection oven which didn't fit through the doors and then we had to rent uh you know all everything you could possibly need to pop something up so it basically was like a tiny little wedding every single time and bringing in all the staff and the servers and stuff so maybe there is a world in which it could have been profitable but in our but you had opportunity you didn't need it at that point exactly so it kind of like performed a function for you to kind of get to know the community and then and then you're off to the race. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And I think, yeah, we we did have a really, really good time. We loved working together. But yes, that it was that. We didn't actually even mean it to to serve that function, but it definitely it definitely did. It kind of felt like a little bit of a fast track into knowing people in the community and we felt very welcome. And yeah. But it was weird. So John went on to uh, be the CDC at Ravine for 
some time. And then where did you go? I went to Oast actually as a, I just wanted to not work in a kitchen for a bit. I just needed to be an employee for a little bit and, and do something, maybe learn something new, expose myself to, uh, just maybe a different industry, a different vibe. I was, I was desperate for that, um, for that kind of change of pace. So you still had a little bit of PTSD from your intense uh, cooking jobs in, in the city and you just yeah. weren't ready yet? Exactly. Yeah, I, de- I felt like I needed some space. And we were also working – we also did have the Norton Underground at the time when I first applied. So I did want to have – if I was going to work in the industry, if I was going to be in a kitchen, it needed to be mine and I needed to be in control of it. Um, mm-hmm. And then if I was going to work for someone else, I I had to be – an hourly employee somewhere that was, it felt low stress. And so I love, I fell in love with craft beer. Um, I really loved the experience there. I felt so valued for the first time in like 10 years. I remember I stayed late there. One of my first shifts, I was asked to stay late because they had a function and they needed an extra hand. And I mean, it was not very grueling at all. And I was so thanked. And I remember thinking like, well, I didn't do anything. Like I'd literally just stayed an extra hour or two. Like it's my pleasure. I'm getting paid. Like what? I don't get it. And I, yeah, the bare minimum yeah. at one of your former jobs becomes this like crazy, amazing thing that you're doing at totally. like, a normal job. Yeah, exactly. I was like, oh shit, this is, wow, it's nice. Like I, I like this. <laughs> I like this. And uh was, yeah, I just felt very, very appreciate, appreciated. And it was a very nice change of pace. And then I became a manager there actually. And um, yeah, then we, we got married there as well. Um, and I'm trying to even remember what happened after that. I think, I think I went to Southbrook after that. It, to be in, in retail there or what no, were you doing? Work, yeah. I was running the kitchen there for a little bit. Oh, right, right, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a summer. That was just a summer. I, I, yeah, I didn't stay longer than that. And th- oh God, then what the heck did I do? Oh, and then I was doing product development for Ravine for a little bit, their Lowry Bros line. Cool. And yeah, that was really fun. I really, really loved doing that. Uh, my God, what, what even happened after? I think basically, Oh yeah, you know what? While I was at Ravine, actually, I met someone who introduced me to a podcast, the Rich Roll podcast. And I don't know if you've heard of it, but Rich Roll, he's a he's an Ironman. Uh, is, is he triathlete? I don't know. Anyway, he's a hardcore athlete, basically long distance running, and I think triathlons is, are his main thing. And he's also vegan. And I started listening to his podcast while I was there, and that planted a seed. And that basically changed And at this my point, life. you're like, yeah. still that girl who maybe would open a butcher shop, like a meat eater. Oh, yeah. Sense. Hardcore. Yeah. Like, I, yeah, definitely. Like, I remember at Oast, we would get our allotment, and I would take my allotment, and I would just crush cheese and meat, like, with a beer. And no question, like I would do this several nights a week without question. It didn't, it wasn't weird to me at all. It was just what I did. And yeah, so it was a, also my sister was living with us at the time and she, um, she's a nutritionist now. Uh, but at the time she was, she's always sort of been flexitarian, vegan, vegetarian-ish on a, on a spectrum. And, um, she was sort of, she was never, she never forced any ideals onto me at all. 
But I sort of, I yeah, you kind of absorb things and we watch documentaries together. And I just felt like over the course of a year or two, I just slowly started to absorb this messaging around the environment and, you know, health and whatever. And I just started to kind of very slowly, very, very, very slowly open my eyes to maybe some things that I'd never thought about before. And I think what I what really inspired me about this and and I'm not I wouldn't even consider myself to be vegan now. I I'm not hardcore, but I definitely identify as more of like a plant-focused eater and cooker. Uh but it wasn't about me. For the first time in my whole career, I was like this is not about me anymore. Like this is not about in terms of health. This wasn't about like trying to be perfect and skinny and fit. This wasn't about this was about animals. This was about the environment. This was about uh you know sustainability. This was about there were so many factors and I had never considered that before and it it actually completely took me out of my ego because for so long it was about like fine dining for me anyways, I think did feel a little bit ego driven because I was trying to find worth in, in the food that I was making and, and the culinary experiences I was providing. And for when you're being pushed that hard, you have the ego yeah. has to step in and justify mm-hmm. all of that um, sort of propaganda to an extent, right? Like, yes. You can't work 21 hour days and yeah. not believe in it 100%. You're so right. It, I feel like the ego steps in to protect you a little bit almost. 100%, yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And yeah, this this was, I certainly have not transcended my ego by any means, but I definitely feel like it helped, it, it helped me to shed a little bit of that when I started to dive into that world. And um, I do not, I do not think the world needs to be vegan. I, again, I don't even, I'm not even 100% vegan. Um, I, I think all of us moving towards more plants is a good idea, but I don't think everyone being vegan is the answer. And, and I don't think it's right for everybody. Um, and I think there are lots of factors to consider. And, and I think working with a healthcare practitioner is important if you are considering that. But uh, I just think it, it really kind of cracks you open in terms of thinking about food in, in a, a less myopic way, in, in a way that encompasses every moving part in our, on our planet. Um, and I think no matter how you identify, you know, omnivorous, pescatarian, vegan, vegetarian, whatever, I just think it serves us all. It serves us all to look at food that way and, and to consider all of the moving parts and every single person and being that it impacts and whatever that means to you is, you know, is what's right for you. But yeah, so that actually, it's amazing how working at Ravine, meeting one person there who opened my eyes to this one podcast and then it coinciding with my sister living with us and all of these documentaries that we were watching, it all just, yeah, it all resulted in my my current mindset. So how did Staff Meal itself come about? So I had, for the first time in a long time, I had, um, I sort of had a, a little bit of a break. Like I was definitely, I was still working. But I was freelance for the first time, and I had this space that I had never had before, this space to just allow... Like mental space. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This mental space to allow creative endeavors to just, they just kind of, 
they kind of like oozed out of me in a way they had never before. I'd, I'd always felt like there was a degree of, I was trying to force something or be busy always, or always have something on the go and push the next project and like, let's go. And like, I just had never given myself that, that mental space before. And also I did start meditating. Um, I just kind of, when you slip into the, the vegan or wellness world, eventually someone's going to introduce you to meditation. (laughs) And then because you're drinking the Kool-Aid as I was, and probably still am, I had to do it. So (laughs) I started meditating and I I had an app because I didn't know how to do it on my own. I still find it hard to do without an app, but I started meditating and it like, I feel as if it, it like carved this extra gap in my brain that I had plugged up before with all of these other, I don't know, with expectation of doing things or whatever else plugged up that hole. And it suddenly it was open and, and then staff meal was just there. And I was, I couldn't ignore it anymore. And I was looking around me and I was like, I, I can't, I, all of these people in hospitality are abusing their bodies. They, they don't know how to feed themselves or they're not feeding themselves. Um, if you have the opportunity to leave, to go on a break and you're in Niagara in the lake and there's literally one road to get anywhere, you you can't, you're going to be stuck on highway 55. Even if you're going to like McDonald's or something, you're going to be stuck on highway 55 for two hours. So you can't, there's just nothing. There's just nothing. And if, I mean, I don't think it's, you don't see people bringing packed lunches to a kitchen super often. So I just felt like there was a, there was an opportunity to take care of people in hospitality because, you know, people in hospitality, we, they are the caretakers obviously among other industries where there are lots of caretakers, but, um, but it is, yeah, it's definitely an industry that has a huge caretaking responsibility without the balance and without the, you know, without the idea of, of caring for oneself. In fact, the opposite, there's a lot of abuse and masochism. (laughs) We're we're all, we all are like hungry for, you know, 100%. It circles back to that idea that we were talking about earlier when you're a young cook that, the the harder life is the better you're doing yes oh my god yeah that you just nailed it that's exactly it 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 must yeah it has to be like they have to be um inversely proportionate for it to make sense yeah so I was like yeah done with that in the very least if I know if I know these people are going to be working a lot in the very least maybe I can provide something that will either encourage Maybe if they can't take a break, that's fine, but maybe they can like have a smoothie or a snack or a soup or a bowl or whatever, even if they're eating it after their shift, even if they're eating half of it, you know, in in between a rush, anything that, Mm -hmm. that can provide that to people in the region and delivering it to the workplace. Because I knew that leaving the workplace is a huge roadblock and basically an impossibility for most people. Um, so that was how staff meal. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, basically it was meant basically just for hospitality and other industries too, like healthcare. I really felt like people working in healthcare often did not have access to healthy food, which is still mind boggling to me. Uh, but yeah, like a Tim Hortons, you see a Tim Hortons in every hospital and basically in every single major shopping area, you see those kinds of places. And I thought that I could maybe offer something, something different. That's amazing. Actually this July, it'll be three years. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. That was almost three years ago. 
the basic structure of it when you first started was people can order you'll kind of put it out there on social what the meal option is going to be and then you'll deliver is that the idea yes exactly so we would send out we would encourage people to sign up for the mailing list and we would send the, the menu weekly and uh, it would change basically weekly like usually I would rotate it would be very small but I would rotate at least one or two items would change each week and kept it small and then yeah you would order online we had the e-commerce set up on our website and then we would deliver to the workplace and it was actually shocking how the demographic we expected differed from the demographic that presented itself how so, so yeah we actually found industry people were less into it and people were interested in this for their home so we ended up doing home delivery and expanding our the the range the geographical range that we delivered in and a lot of yeah a lot of people were ordering to their homes actually so we were like oh cooks need this servers need this but okay we'll go with this too like you just yeah we we were actually surprised but it's so funny because yeah Tommy is the exact same story yeah uh, when we launched we thought we want to be a pop-up restaurant. We, we want to cater. There must be five or six other businesses in Niagara that are just like us. Yeah. And the first 10 members that have become like full-time users of the space, not one of them has a similar business to us or each other. That's in I, that is so interesting. Yeah. You can it's, start out with an idea of who your target market is. Yeah. And then sometimes it surprises you and it, it chooses you. Yep. And it's actually funny in the last podcast with Tam, mm -hmm. she said the exact same thing. Oh yeah. About like what from like a marketing perspective, who she thought their, you know, like uh, typical customer would be. Yeah. And yeah, she was like, I thought it would be somebody like me, but actually it's not. Wow. Oh, that's yeah, I find that really fascinating. That's a whole exploration in itself. So you like what did you have to do to pivot on that front? Or did you? We didn't really, it sort of pivoted organically. And essentially, if you had a, an address, we would go there. And we tried to encourage bulk ordering, um, but it just got so busy with these individual orders that we were, we were like, we don't even have, we can't even try to encourage restaurants to order right now or hospitality businesses to order right now because we're so swamped as it is. So we were just, we were just kind of, getting through each day and just trying to keep up with with uh, the orders but yeah we were geographically it didn't make a ton of sense because we were delivering to quite a, a wide range and a lot of them we did try to again encourage larger orders but yeah sometimes you were just delivering a couple bowls here and there to and so uh, who was yeah. this yourself and a partner or a mm -hmm. team or like yeah Amanda Amanda Ali and I she so Amanda and I met at Oast and I, I came to her with this idea and we'd been kind of, we were always talking about food and we were always talking about the industry and just kind of felt like the right timing and the right fit. And uh, we have a lot of similar values. So yeah, we, we actually applied for uh, a small bursary through Dream Girl, which was, it was a documentary about female entrepreneurs. And yeah, so we, we pitched it at this, they had this, uh, like a pitch session basically, and they selected us with a couple other people to pitch. And then we won the pitch and it was actually the best thing that could happen because it forced us to, to take this idea, which was just an idea and actually, uh, 
you know, bring it into, take it into fruition because otherwise we probably would have waited for it to be perfect. So, yeah. And the thing about waiting for it to be perfect, like that's, Mm -hmm. I think it's in all of our nature, right? Like we don't want to put something out in the world with our name on it. That's not exactly what we think, but Mm -hmm. as literally we were just talking about, you don't know exactly what this thing is going to be. It's going to, it's going to tell you what it wants to be and what the region wants it to be. So it's like making it perfect actually doesn't do you any favors. It just sets you back a little while because you're still going to have to perfect it. It's still going to evolve. So just you're you're right. Yeah. You're so, you're so right. I think that is, if there's any takeaway, I think that I have from starting this business is, is exactly that. It's exactly that. And I think that that fear of, waiting for all of your ducks to be in a row and all of your marketing and your graphic design and to have the perfect logo and to have everything absolutely perfect is exactly that. It's it's holding you back because you may discover that actually the logo you initially chose or the name you initially chose may not even work for you because your target demographic will change, which is actually exactly what happened to us. Our target demographic did change and we and does does yeah. staff meal translate? <laughs> it doesn't. Industry? No, it doesn't really. It doesn't. It's it's a little confusing for people. But um, but yeah, we're actually talking about uh, pivoting and shifting gears quite a bit with staff meal, including our name. So yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, so many so many huge brands have done that. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't think that's something to shy away from either. Like especially now that you actually have like a pretty long history and like mm-hmm. bit of a track record and you kind of now you feel like you've narrowed in on who your target market is, or do you feel like there's a lot of uh, room to grow and change on that front? Well, probably a little bit of both. I I would say maybe now we've kind of figured out who our target market is, but we actually don't know if the way staff mail exists right now, if it still aligns with us. So we're actually in the middle of, and the timing with everything that's going on right now with COVID-19 and this kind of forced, this forced pause Mm -hmm. as, as much pain and suffering and weird stuff that there is in it. I really do feel lucky that it's kind of given us this opportunity to pause in terms of our business as well. And thinking about, to seriously think about what the next stage will look like. Uh, And I definitely think that COVID-19 has changed the landscape in hospitality Definitely. And might It'll continue be, even more, but depending on how this uh, plays out. 100%. No one no one has any frame of reference for any of this, right? So. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So we're basically, what we've been really interested in is education. So like more workshops, more community events. I love the events that you guys do, the Sunday events that you guys do, the Sunday social. Yeah, that we called? launched that literally right before coronavirus in the earth so (laughs) hilarious timing um because it's called sunday social and the whole point is to get people in a room together to mingle so bit of a fail but uh we're very very hopeful that uh the world stops melting soon and we can get back to it because yeah it's it's a really fun idea just it's it's very casual but very um focused on professional development and and fostering sense of community so yeah it's it's definitely something that's on hold majorly right now but um similar to you like we're just trying to take this time to think about what other ways we can provide value 
mm-hmm. uh, in the interim and going forward, right? Like probably wouldn't have pulled the plug on executing on a podcast for another six months without this. So yeah, yes. trying to trying to look at the positive side of things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And ways in which we can serve the community digitally, which is so weird because basically we have been trying to take staff meal from not that it's had a digital presence, but to take it way more into real life and connected experiences. And yeah. that is literally we've been we've been thinking about putting a pause on production for a little while to focus more on gathering people together in whatever <laughs> way that is. And it's like yeah. the ultimate the ultimate LOL from the universe um, yeah. to say that actually, but you know what, maybe it is, it's a call to diversify what you offer people and di- diversifying it in terms of, you know, digital experiences in conjunction with connected in-person experiences when, yeah, when the time comes, yep. <laughs> we can do that again. But yeah, it's actually kind of a weird time for staff meal in a good way. Like I, I love these, these kind of in-betweens as, as uncomfortable as they are. I always know that on the other side of that, the in-between is something way better than what you could have imagined if you just kept kind of grinding it out and, and continuing on a trajectory that maybe doesn't feel a hundred percent aligned. So yeah, yeah, I actually don't. It takes you out of your day to day and creates like a, an altered mental space. I think is always a good thing. Definitely. You think about things differently and different ideas pop into your head that never would have otherwise. I think uh, a change of scenery, whether physical or mental, is always a good thing. Exactly. A hundred percent agree. So, yeah, I actually think when this all blows over and who knows when that is, but I hope it's soon. I think we all hope it's soon. Um, I think we're all going to be so desperate to connect in person again that more than ever, the, the types of things that you guys are offering and that we would like to offer I think there'll there'll be an even bigger need for it. So, yep. yeah. And hopefully with an increased sense of community, like I I I'm really trying to take this time to connect with people more. I know it's like yeah. not possible to do it in person, but mm-hmm. like doing this podcast, chatting with you right now. Like if we were both just going about our day-to-day super busy schedule, mm-hmm. this probably would never have happened. So I'm trying to lean into things like that that maybe normally I wouldn't have the time to really think about. Yeah, that's such a good point. I actually had a, a chat with a neighbor, a long distance, six meter separate from each other chat that we never would have had before. We were both yeah. going for a walk and uh, we probably never would have taken the time to have that conversation, but it's totally beautifully bringing people together in in the weirdest way. Um, and I definitely think it's going to change the way we all shop going forward, actually, and we all consume. 100%. And for the better, right? Like, I think, yeah. like, it's it's a terrible situation, but I think mm-hmm. anything that um, can can move us forward and make us more efficient and make us more thoughtful going forward is, is bound to be a positive thing. Exactly. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, so uh, actually segues beautifully you're nailing the segues right now um so I was gonna ask are there any other brands businesses or individuals either locally or on a more macro scale that you admire or that are kind of inspiring how you think about business or the industry at the moment yeah big time um okay this one oh this is so hard because inevitably I'm gonna regret I'm going to regret, you know, missing people, but I'm just going to go for it. Okay. So, well, obviously love what you guys are doing at Call Me. 
um, and, and just kind of bolstering the community. And instead of it, it really enforces this idea of collaboration over competition, because I think sharing it in a physical space and then sharing about other businesses, it just completely breaks down. And I know everyone's doing something different, but it completely breaks down these, um, these per- this perception that we can't coexist, that if you are in the industry, you're, in, you're the enemy or that you're a competition. And I think that's really beautiful and important and needed. Um, I love uh, Jolene from Garden City Essentials. She's one of my favorite people on planet Earth. And she has a you know, fill-up station, so she's promoting a lot of zero waste, um, zero waste kind of purchasing behaviors. She has a TerraCycle bin there, so you can dispose of things that you can't dispose of in your regular recycling bin. Uh, I love what Tam and Adam are doing at Dispatch in terms of food waste reduction using you know, every single part of the plant or the animal, I think to me that is sustainability. And that to me is even more sustainable than maybe some vegan restaurants because they are, they are truly utilizing everything and not just utilizing it, but alchemizing it, which I think is very difficult and really impressive. Um, I love, oh, Tiffany Mayer. I don't know. In general, she's just, she is like the cheerleader of hospitality in Niagara. And her her Instagram feed and her Twitter feed are like um whenever I get a bit bogged down with the the media surrounding this whole situation I just kind of switch gears and tune into whatever she's up to and it always puts a smile on my face yeah oh same here she's very special um oh uh my friends Christine and Caitlin they have a a company called Wild Woven and they they dye natural fabrics with botanicals so they use all they also use food waste so avocado pits. Um, they use onion skins. They use uh, black bean soaking liquid to dye fabrics. Genius. So cool. And they use, uh, you know, like wildflowers that they gather from, I don't know, wild places. <laughs> I don't know where you get wildflowers, but they do. Yeah. They're, they're doing really cool stuff. And also the fabrics that they use, I mean, our bedding and, and the fabrics that we use, they touch our bodies all day for an extended period of time. So just kind of being aware of, you know, the chemicals and whatever bleaches and dyes and things that are on the fabrics that we interact with. So I think that's really cool. I love Laura Wright. Uh, she's a vegan. She has a blog called The First Mess. And her yes. cookbook, yeah, her cookbook the first, is one of my favorite cookbooks of all time. Um, and then there's a Danish blogger. I, her name, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's spelt S-I-G-N-E. Signe? I don't know. Do you know how to pronounce that? I I don't no. know. Either way, it's – anyway, she's a sustainable fashion blogger, and I love – she talks about purchasing secondhand and basically uh, not over-consuming and not falling prey to the narrative in fast fashion, which is to constantly consume the new, the cool, the fresh, the whatever, and just being aware of who is making in the same way that we have to be aware of who's producing our food and where our food is coming from. I think that definitely applies to what we put on our bodies too, in terms of clothing we wear. Um, and Oh, there's so many more. Oh, this is general, but any, I have a lot of friends who are moms and who are in the workforce, whether they're in hospitality or not. I think that is the most impressive thing. Just momming, being a mom in general, so much respect. I just, I really, I have to check myself sometimes if I ever complain about anything, basically anything. I just don't allow it because being a mom is so 
undervalued, I think, and the expectations to be the perfect mom and then also show up perfectly in your job and everything else you do, I think is so impressive. So I, I can't agree enough. My mom is one of the most incredible human beings I've ever met. She's so cool. Um, yeah, so definitely agree on that one. My mom has inspired me to never have kids because I know I will (laughs) never live up to her, which is the best. Oh man, that, wow. That made me a little, what's your mom like oh my god okay we call her uh well my dad calls her his little buddha <laughs> because she is she lives on happy island and she is like un you cannot she's unfettered always just oh and the compliments like you just show up and you're like you've won you've won like she's the good job she's always saying good job to everybody like no matter what you do (laughs) maybe that's why (laughs) yeah until the good job part because my mom doesn't throw that around too much but um my dad calls my mom Pollyanna because she no way to a a fault like is always pointing (laughs) out the like well at least this isn't happening yeah yeah that's so funny that's hilarious yeah we basically have the same mom uh (laughs) i think they would be pals they should uh connect in the instagram comments guys you guys are going to be best buds 100 percent. we'll coach Uh, them through how to do that off air because i'm also also 100 percent uh accurate Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah no she's really wonderful and very sunshiny and optimistic and like I have not seen her stress about this coronavirus uh situation basically at all it's pretty pretty impressive very cool shout out to all the moms it it must be tough especially at the moment just to be you know like to Mm -hmm. be the person everyone's looking to for like is everything cool you know yeah that's such a good point like you almost you almost don't have the permission to um, to maybe be scared or be afraid or show your anxiety about something because you have to you have to be this strong presence for the little people that you're taking care of. Mm-hmm. Super off topic, but mm-hmm. this, is, this has been a lovely chat. I've enjoyed it very much. <laughs> me too. Me too. When uh, it's allowed, we should get together in person, and uh, it'd be amazing to I, like. I can't wait to see where you guys take staff meal or to be to be renamed in the in the near future. I can't wait to see it. You guys have always been a huge inspiration to me, both you and John. Um, Really like something for our region to look up to. So thank you for being that. And uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, my God, that is that's so kind. And it's so completely mutual. And any opportunity that I ever anything I don't know. You, I probably sent you a few weird emails of like any weird opportunities, weird, good. I mean, not weird, bad. Um, I always think of you. You're always like the first person that pops up when I think of any female chef oriented or any chef oriented thing that I get presented with. I just, you're always top of mind. Um, I think you're so talented and everything you're providing is really valuable and so needed and um, just feel really lucky to know you. So I can't wait to catch up with you soon in real life. Same here. Same here. All right. Be well. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye.